Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm Betsy Olam, your host, and I really appreciate your joining us and listening today. I'm so excited to have as our guest on this, our third podcast, Mary Riley Mitchell. Our episode is entitled Stories of Exposure and How International Insurance Covers Serious Risks. Mary retired in 2015 as a senior vice president and advisory leader for the global insurance broker Marsh and McLennan in their Phoenix office. What she knows about international insurance, insurance brokerage, and risk management is enormous. We're going to talk about that experience and hear some of her favorite export stories, stories about exposure that some customers never could have anticipated. So now I'm very pleased to introduce Mary. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Well, thanks, Betsy. It's great to be here, and I appreciate being included on your podcast series. Uh, and I should mention that Mary is joining us all the way from Phoenix, so we're excited to have you. So uh, let's say, first of all, I'd like to uh, say that I believe you are originally from Memphis, like me. Is that correct? Um, yes. I We actually moved to Memphis when I was eight years old. And oh, before right. that, I lived as a child. I was born in Washington, D.C., and then I lived in Japan for three years. Wow. Uh, what took you all to Japan? Well, my dad was in the Air Force, and he was involved in helping after the Second World War, there were efforts to start business between American and Japanese companies. So and he helped facilitate the normalization of relations between the U.S. and Japan. Oh, how interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, really good. And looking back... Uh, even though you were pretty young, do you think that experience of living abroad, living in Japan may have affected your interest later in international business? Oh, definitely. I, I was always interested in international issues after that because in Memphis, there weren't very many people that I met that had lived outside of the South. And I did think it was a wonderful opportunity as a child to see the world, even as a young child, from a different point of view. I can see that. Uh, I would say that you began your career right out of Vanderbilt in the insurance business and then briefly switched to banking. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I started out at a large um, insurance brokerage firm in Nashville, and I worked with really large global companies there as, you know, the bottom of the total pole risk analyst. <laughs> but I found that um, they, those companies wanted to express every, all their success in terms of earnings per share. And with my liberal arts degree, I didn't really know what that was. So I decided <laughs> I should really make a move. And I was fortunate to be um, admitted to the management training program at a sizable regional bank and really dug in for a number of years and became a lending officer, a banking officer, making loans to businesses and individuals. And so I learned a lot about the financial side of business. I've always thought that uh, finance is a, is a really useful background for insurance. Uh, I mean, they're, they're definitely related, don't you think? 
Oh, definitely. Many, uh, because the risks are typically expressed in terms of financial loss, they can be operational loss, they can be, you know, injury to people, but many of the risks and exposures businesses have are expressed in terms of the amount of financial risk a company feels comfortable assuming themselves and then how much they want to hand off to an insurance company in terms of procuring buying insurance for different exposures they have. Right, right. That makes sense. So what brought you back to the insurance business? Well, I got back into the insurance. I moved to Phoenix to follow my heart. <laughs> my husband was then my boyfriend, and um, I interviewed with banks and insurance companies, and I had an opportunity, again, to learn the insurance carrier business. And one of my mentors from Nashville actually said, the job that was available, he thought I would really enjoy. So I went to work for a, a large insurance company and was there for a number of years and did did or managed every discipline except for safety engineering. I'm still a bit of a klutz. <laughs> <laughs> well, was that the company that was associated with Xerox? Yes, they were. It was called Industrial Indemnity at that time. And they were a subsidiary of Crum and Forster, which then in turn was owned by Xerox Financial Services Company. Yeah, Crum and Forster was an old company, wasn't it? It'd been around oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. And, and so, yeah, it was a great experience to learn how the insurance company looks at the financials and how they developed their rates and basically where there was wiggle room to negotiate. I learned a lot about that before I went back into the brokerage business when I joined Marsh. And uh, how did Marsh uh, come about? How did that opportunity come about? Well, uh, we uh, Xerox announced they were going to sell the company I worked for. And at that time, I was uh, I was quite aware of what it was like to be part of a discontinued operation. So, <laughs> I think we all had that little... experience at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to be a footnote on the financial statement. So <laughs> I went to the, my two favorite brokers and talked to them. And one of them, actually, they both talked to me about coming to work for them because I had worked closely with all the brokers in Arizona. And uh, I took a job at Marsh and really never looked back. I was there for 22 years before I retired. It was a great experience. Oh, you must have enjoyed it. Are they, would you say they're one of the world's largest? Uh, yes. Uh, last that I knew, they, they described themselves as, themselves as a global leader in insurance broking and risk management. But in all the years I worked there, and I believe still, when you looked at the numbers, they were the largest. Uh, so in the, well, you can tell us maybe a little bit about some of the most interesting responsibilities that you had, and then uh, maybe talk a little bit about the international uh, experience that you had. Sure. Uh, I did a lot of different things over all those years. You have to be pretty flexible in, in this business and, and follow the changes in industry. Um, mostly I worked with uh, large companies, either nationally, uh, companies with national scope or multinational insurance, I mean uh, clients who needed coverage around the world. And my what happened, what I observed is companies would start exporting their products to other countries. That would be sort of the first time they would get involved in international risks. And then as they grew, they'd say, well, we probably need a sales office here or in Europe or in Asia or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then some of them would actually have manufacturing plants or operations around the world or do construction projects. So I focused with hospitality clients, technology clients, 
and construction clients for the most part in, in the mm -hmm. last few years of my career. We kind of aligned ourselves with industries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I led a team of um, uh, client managers and client advisors and, and different um, different disciplines. And I, I, we got involved in really every line of coverage on the property and casualty side um, and and worked with companies that were, were very interesting. They did a lot of, they had interesting products or they had difficult risks. Most of our clients were large enough that they had challenging risks. Mm -hmm. it, it, they weren't easy, ordinary exposures, although I'm sure lots of them had ordinary exposures. We didn't typically, um, we, we got involved in, in more complicated yeah. Well, that ma that's what makes it fun, I think, is when it's challenging. <laughs> so, and so you kind of oversaw a, a team of professionals that at Marsh that looked at different aspects, and then you sort of uh, pulled it together for a comprehensive type of coverage for these companies. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, when I was the client executive for a, a particular client. I would be the one that pulled together all the disciplines for that client. When I was a client manager for a client, I would be the subject matter expert that would make sure all the placements happened. And as a practice leader or, you know, overseeing, I, I would um, manage and oversee the work of a group of people. So I, I did lots of different functions over the years and always found it interesting. You know, you go back and forth between getting really involved in a product line and then stepping back and becoming a generalist and bringing in the subject matter experts when the risk is really complicated. Well, I have worked in organizations where several people from the company were calling on the same client and nobody was working together. I always thought that was just bad for the client and bad for the company. So it's always heartening to hear about businesses that understand the team approach and that everybody's working for the same goal. That's, at least that's the way I yeah, think we, about it. I, I did think that was one of our strengths. And because we had operations in 130 countries, we would enlist the help of local nationals that lived in that country to help our client when they had issues in that country. And so that made it really great. So I want to ask you about something that was on your resume, and then we'll get into some of your stories. But what, okay. is, what is a terrorism captive? And tell us about your work with that. <laughs> it sounds really exciting, and maybe it's not, but I, I'm real curious because I don't remember what that means. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, from the very beginning of my career, I was involved in helping companies with captive insurance companies. And that's when typically very large companies form their own insurance company to deal with either the risks that they want to self-insure mm -hmm. or very difficult risks to insure. And uh, throughout my career, I worked with captives either when I was on the carrier side, I did the financials for some captives that, groups that we formed when 20 or 30 companies would together form a captive insurance company to share risks. And when I was at Marsh after September 11th, oh, yeah. Coverage for terrorism was really hard to come by and very, very expensive, as you might under, understand. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the government had a program, the terrorism TRIA program, and then later TRIPRA, but that only offered a certain level of coverage. And for large companies, it wasn't necessarily enough. And for certain types of exposures, it wasn't enough. So I had a, there was a, a business that, that basically owned a number of businesses, uh, kind of a conglomerate. Mm -hmm. 
And they said, we want to have insurance that will protect our business interruption in the event of a terrorism uh, event. And we want to control how those claims operate, you know, within the normal um, appropriate methods. And so we helped them form their own captive insurance company to ensure their own risk of terrorism events. Wow. And it was... Well, let me just ask you one question. Would kidnapping fall under that, or is that a separate type of risk from terrorism? Um, That's a separate type of risk. Um, There is coverage that's called special coverage that covers kidnap and ransom. And it's actually kind of interesting because many companies don't even admit it's kind of kept very low key that they even purchase this coverage because they don't want to encourage Absolutely. if someone found out oh yeah yeah that they that they had the coverage um, but but that's a different line of, of coverage I see. than terrorism uh, so terrorism well we know what terrorism is it'd be uh, destroying lives and property I guess is, uh, that's right. Yeah. So, well, that's really interesting. I, I kind of wanted to bring that up. I thought I thought our listeners would would find that interesting. It's something that you don't really think about since nine eleven, but uh, it certainly affects uh, global companies. So, that's yes. And and I worked with the terrorism product line experts because, to our knowledge, no one had put together a captive insurance company specifically to deal with the terrorism exposure. And so as far as we knew, this was the first one that had ever been done. And it was, it was quite interesting. Yeah. That's always exciting. So, well, uh, we'd love to hear some of your stories and help. And when you, when we're talking about it, let us help us think about what it means to manage risk before a loss occurs, you know, because I think that's, I think that's something that, uh, by learning from stories, you know, the things that happen to people, maybe make them think about those kind of risks ahead of time. Yes. Well, that that's a that's an entire, um, a huge discipline uh, in terms of risk management when you're going to be selling your product overseas or shipping things or starting a location there. It's really important that you identify good advisors in that country that are reputable and, and you know, certainly the State Department helps with that and we would direct our clients' local management with our local offices to perhaps learn the names of some reputable accountants and attorneys and other business partners that they could do business with to know that, that these were well-established, reputable firms. It, it's really hard when you go outside your own territory right. to know who you can trust. <laughs> exactly. No, I can see I can see what a huge benefit that would be for an international office that you have, a subsidiary company or something like that. Uh, one of the things you do is you take the risk management prevention techniques that you have in the U.S. and you apply those same practices, how you screen your employees before you hire them to make sure that they're, you know, going to be good employees. And, and you, you, within the laws of that country, you comply with all of the local requirements because what you want to be known as is a reputable company too so you you have all the local laws and requirements um, that you that you comply with including things like basically every country has certain requirements uh, regarding compulsory auto coverage well you might have a lot of limits that you buy globally, but you need to make sure that you're going to be buying the proper auto insurance locally 
And then your global program can provide additional limits over and above that. So we would help our customers understand, okay, these are the required coverages in that country, and then let's make sure that you have the same coverage there that you offer in the U.S. Right. to the extent that that's practical right. um, and, and allowed. Yeah, that's a good example, uh, just one of so many things you have to think about. So, well, uh, so what is your first story that you want to tell us about? What does it involve? Well, one of, one of the things when companies are exporting, they're shipping things all around the world, and, and with that become a host of risks. So most of our clients purchase marine cargo coverage, and this would cover not just when they were out on the ocean, the shipment was in a container, but <clears throat> excuse me, usually also once it arrived at the port and had to be trucked to the customer site, mm -hmm. or maybe it would be put on rail and sent via rail, or there may have been air shipments. So there are all kinds of shipments that your customers need to have covered. And so they buy the coverage, and, and typically they would uh, estimate what they think they're going to be shipping per year and what the values would be at risk at any one conveyance, one truck, one ship, one air freight. So you'd have, again, an idea of how expensive or how much values at risk that you would have in a given shipment. So it's just an estimate. So, I mean, it's just an estimate. So, I mean, you're, you're going to buy ex extra coverage in case your estimate is low, right? Well, sure, but you're you're going to be – you can also – do your estimate, and then at the end of the year, you tell the carrier, well, I actually had less or more than that, and they adjust it. They can audit the policy. So that's very easy. Okay. Um, most of our clients separate, and I think you pretty much have to, your revenues that are generated, you know, in your own country versus those that you ship outside of the U.S. Okay. All right. So, so lots of things can go wrong. Um, for example, we unfortunately that's that's why I had a job. Exactly. Um, we had a technology client that was shipping a part that they needed in their manufacturing process, and this particular part was shipped by air. So, unfortunately, the air cargo plane crashed, and. You know, it was easy to verify those are are published, you know, widely and quickly. Yeah. So the marine underwriters have claims people really around the world. They're they really provide good service in this area, and this particular insurer paid the claim and also made sure there was expediting expense to get another replacement part shipped rapidly enough that the production schedule uh, could still be maintained. Did it, is this the one you told me about? It was kind of a famous crash uh, in the Pacific. Yes. So, yes. so everything was completely lost. Is that everything right? was lost and the, the entire aircraft went down in the ocean and um, our client, you know, called us and said, hey, this happened, and and we were able to immediately go online and see that that air crash had happened, and of course, they had a bill of lading that had shown the value of that part, and we had coverage that allowed them to expedite the shipping, so at the end of the day, they were made whole. The, the fact that that part was lost didn't damage their business, but, you know, um, Happy ending it, it, to a bad story. Yeah, that that one that was a good story. Uh, we had a we had a client that called me. It was a construction client, and they were doing a pretty big uh, construction project. And they called and said, "Do you guys do ocean marine coverage?" And I said, "Yeah." 
He said, well, our project includes some acoustical material for the ceiling of this this um, place. And I said, okay, that's not a problem. And they said, well, so here's how it works. The material comes to us in powder form, and then we mix it with water, and we have big hoses, and then we basically spray this on the ceiling so the acoustical material can, can deal with the sound issues. Yeah. And I said, okay. I, I don't understand what's the issue here. And, and the guy said, well, the manufacturer is located in Colombia. <laughs> and I said, oh, I mean, this was powder during the from time. Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. That should be easy. <laughs> yeah. Powder, white powder, actually. It was actually <laughs> white. <laughs> and this was a long time ago when before Columbia cleaned up and, you know, the cocaine business was booming. And so that took quite a bit of explanation, but we were able to help the marine underwriters feel comfortable that this really was legitimate product, and and we were able to get that risk placed for them, and and we again were able to make sure that in the event of a delay, yeah, that they would would have because this project plan required the material to be applied within a certain milestone period, and if it didn't, they'd have to expedite shipping again. Well, were, were customs agents there when it came in to test it or, or had they already approved it and before it arrived? You know, I don't know. I think it was all approved before it arrived. Uh, the value was not, sometimes the values are so large that there is a surveyor actually at the port when it leaves port ah. to look at the value and the, and the uh, condition of the shipment. And then there's another uh, surveyor at the port of arrival where they confirm again that everything is in that shipment and that the shipment isn't damaged. Yes. But this one wasn't that big of a value. Yeah. It was just, it could have been considered suspicious if you hadn't uh, stepped in and, <laughs> And take care of it on the front end. That that was that's thinking ahead exactly. I have one question. I want to go back just a minute to that plane crash in the Pacific. Uh, I was uh -huh. thinking about in the ocean shipping business. If a ship goes down, everybody that has cargo on that ship participates in the loss. I can't remember what you call that. Um, I wonder if it's the same for an airplane. Uh, cargo. I can't remember what you call it. Oh, you it. mean every insurer? No, every every owner, every shipper who had product on the ship when it went down, everybody has to share in the total loss of the ship. Or or if something happens to the ship, the people that are shipping on the ship have to participate in the loss. You know what I'm talking about? I can't remember the term. Just, well, there is um if you go kind of back to the Lloyd's days, the syndication, right. if you're talking about a syndication or the, there may be a pro rata sharing of a loss, but yeah. for our clients, we had the coverage that we would have would be subject to a deductible for, and, and their own exposure would be covered up to the limits they purchased. So they weren't sharing in the loss of the oh. aircraft that was actually covered, the whole coverage and all of that was covered by the aviation insurer. I see. Yeah, there's something on, and I imagine still is, on the ocean bill of lading, some terminology that, like you say, goes all the way back to Lloyd's, you know, old Lloyd's days that talks about sharing in the loss or something. But I, I for some reason, I can't think of that term. It, I always thought that was kind of interesting because it was an old, old uh, tradition that, you know, carried over. But anyway, so tell me about your next story. Is it have something to do with warehousing or goods in transit or something like that? Well, I, I, I was thinking and I've done a bit of research about what is an emerging area in this coverage, which is the difficulty of dealing with fraud. Oh, that's a good and, 
Yes, and what what we're seeing, it, it used to be that hackers would go in to a company and would email that company. Somebody internally would pretend to have the real email address of someone in the company and send directions to change the delivery place of a particular shipment. Oh, gee. So... That, that would, and what would happen is once there was a loss of that type, the company would be able to research it internally and say, oh, this looked like a, a legitimate email, but it wasn't. And they would typically be able to uh, keep that from happening in the future. They would have an, a, a method for confirming those types of change instructions that happened in during a shipment you mean well, a now hacker what, just to, just to clarify a hacker would somehow be able to change the documents while the cargo was you know en route is that what you mean no they would they would tell internally one of what they thought the the colleague would get an email from who they thought was their superior saying you uh tell the shipper to deliver it to a different place. And oh, they wow. would do it because they thought their manager was telling them to do it. Oh, wow. Well, that, that's not as frequent. It still happens occasionally. The hackers uh, still do that. But they found that it's easier to, once the shipment is actually en route, to hack in the system of the freight forwarder or the shipping company and actually go in and change the bill of lading. Gosh. So that, yeah, they... Well, everything's they, electronic I, now, so I guess that's the, the the downside of the electronic paperwork. Exactly. It was harder when it was, you know, carbon copies and all of that yeah. in some ways to make a change. And now if the networks aren't fully secure, they can direct it to an empty warehouse. And at that warehouse location, they can have a truck that then diverts that shipment. And the, the shipper, the client, the customer sending their goods has no idea this has happened until their customer calls them and says, hey, where's my shipment? Wow. And it, so, so that's a real increasing challenge. And what we're finding even now is that some of the trucking companies or um, fraudulent truckers are using GPS blockers to jam the GPS system. <sighs> so that disrupts the ability to follow the shipment. So that's, that's really uh, an increasing problem. We're seeing it on the West Coast. Oh, really? Boy, the criminal mind, the new things they come up with. But So uh, is it possible to say what parts of the world where this is really frequent? I mean, do you know of where you see a lot of the shipments are being uh, rerouted that way? Well, it, it that, when it's, uh, once it's re reached a port and is going on a truck to a warehouse, that could happen anywhere. But what we are seeing also is piracy. And again, that's maybe most notable. The Somali pirates are pretty well known. Right, right. And, and they, they take over an entire ship and all the containers. And they might actually put the captain and the crew out on another smaller dinghy and not even damage them because this is just business to them. Right. And there was a movie. So when, again, there was a movie about that actually. It was a <laughs> ship and a Somali pirates. Oh my gosh, that's it's so crazy. It doesn't seem real, but it happens happens a lot. I remember. When when there was a lot of um, uh, press about it, I think, you know, the international countries were um, 
stepping up having ships in that area. I wonder if they're still, you know, kind of policing that part of the ocean. Yes, they, they really are. And what what is happening now is like on the large values, the surveyors are there where when the shipment leaves port and then they are there when the shipment arrives at the next port and they do guide the ships away from the areas where they've seen the recent piracy. Unfortunately, if there's really bad weather or something, they may have to redirect and get into a more dangerous spot. Oh, gee. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, and it, it makes good stories. Uh, unfortunately for businesses, uh, it's, a real, it's a real problem, and I'm sure that part of the world is still pretty dangerous uh, for, yes. for shipping. So, uh, yes, and, and uh, again, for inland transit, um, when for a number of years, Companies that have high-value merchandise, um, computer companies and that sort of thing, have been taking their logos off their packaging and their shipping boxes. So to, to make it, so it's not easy for the thieves to know. Oh, here's a truckload full of PCs or, or whatever. And so you're you're seeing that's one risk management method that is used to try to keep people from from really knowing and another one is although there are ship tracking websites that you can look at unless you have clearance from the government you can't get real-time information there's always a lag time of what the status of that shipment is or that ship is because it's a security issue absolutely uh, you know, in the old days when you had break bulk shipping, uh, you know, I'm sure there's lots and lots of stories about, you know, scotch whiskey coming in and the, the longshoremen were kind of sticking a few bottles in their back pocket while they're unloading the ships. You know. <laughs> that's one thing that's containers have done, you know, is at least, uh, help, uh, minimize that kind of theft. But it still happens, doesn't it? It still happens. <laughs> That's right. It, it definitely does. And and even back then, again, before GPS and all of that, um, there's a, a story that about a manufacturer of men's pants that the styles were changing and apparently mysteriously between ports, a whole lot of pants were sent overboard ah. and you know because most of the policies are valued at selling price they were able to get their profit on pants that they weren't 100% sure they were going to be able to sell otherwise so there there is always risk of that type but now like you said <laughs> with containers yeah. the the there is less slippage or or theft uh, of that type than uh, by quite a bit than there used to be oh that yes definitely definitely that's that's so interesting um so do you have another or any other stories that you wanted to share with us today well i've got a couple more there's one um one of our clients was in construction and they had a project in India. And what you find is that infrastructure isn't really always that great in rural areas anywhere, but uh, the roads were particularly bad on the way to this project. Yeah, I've heard that specifically about the interior of India, the infrastructure. Yeah, so this truck has some delicate equipment that was supposed to go to the job site and the truck turned over and kind of ended up in a muddy ditch. And the equipment was damaged. So the claims people sent out a crane to get the truck out of yeah. the mud. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the crane itself then 
overturned oh, and gee. ended up. Oh, oh my God, what a mess. <laughs> what a mess. So here's this um, marine insurer having to deal with another claim. And so in order to make sure they didn't get a third claim, yeah, they actually repaired the road itself so that the project <laughs> wow yeah wow. that that's kind of a funny that's an interesting uh, approach to fixing a problem uh that's 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 <laughs> crazy oh my gosh so and, and i have one more for you and good. that is this is happening right now it is i think so interesting and this is something that your listeners could look up on online. There is an organization called LSST. It stands for Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Large and it syn- is, LSST. I'll try to put that on my website uh, when I post, yeah. post this uh, podcast. Large, well, I'll look it up. LSST. Okay. That's right. All right. And th- this is a project that is a construction project currently going on in Chile, and it is going to be the newest, most amazing telescope and the largest telescope to date. It is the primary, the first mirror, there are three mirrors, is 8.4 meters in diameter, basically 30 feet. Wow, wow. Yes, and this is going to be able, the the new telescope is going to be able to get 40 square meters of sky every 30 seconds so they can photograph the entire available visible sky two times a week with a resolution that is enormously better than any that has been done before. And the reason we know about it is these amazing scientists that have helped fabricate these mirrors and polish them, uh, a number of them are based at an optical lab at the University of Arizona. Hmm. And so they built this or fabricated these huge mirrors. It took them years to do so because it's optical glass and it's the the tech the technical difficulty is really extreme and they finished the mirror the the large and smallest that are actually attached to one another um they finished it before the guys in chile were ready so they stored the mirror in a custom-made giant um, box basically yeah. at a hangar outside the two near the Tucson airport. And a couple of weeks ago, they moved that conveyance from Tucson to Houston to load it onto a ship to send it to Chile. Chile. Mm-hmm. The whole transit will take five weeks to wow. get there. Wow, just to Chile. That's, wow. Yes, because in just the piece between Tucson and Houston, that would typically only take you a couple of days to drive. Right. took them 10 days. Gosh. If if you can picture driving down the... Oversized, major major oversized, major oversized (laughs) shipment. Oh God! I hate passing, I hate passing those things when you're on the freeway. You know, you don't want to pass them. You think they're going to knock you over or something. I bet that was amazing. Yes, and of course, because the equipment was so delicate, it had to move at a very slow speed. <laughs> yes. Ten days worth of slow. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine following that caravan? Oh boy! Wow! Yes. That's neat. That's that's amazing. It it really is. And part of this project includes building the world's largest to date camera. 
And there are all these camera parts that are being fabricated in Germany, and they're being shipped from Germany to Chile. But because the project management team is here, the shipments are being insured, you know, or covered for these shipments here. And it's it's really very a very interesting. Oh, and it is. Is this looking into space or it's looking at the sky within the, you know, atmosphere? Just curious. It's looking into space, and the what they're saying is that the capability, well, two things really captured me. There are many uh, faint objects in the sky, and this new technology is going to allow, I, I think they said, 100 million uh, better visibility than wow. what we've been able to see uh, to date. I think that was the number that I saw. Wow. And the other thing that is so interesting is they're going to be sharing this information with the public. So you could actually, if you have a computer, yeah. once it's up and running, you'll be able to view the moving map of the universe Gosh. that is created by this telescope. It just blows my mind. That is so interesting. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up the future. And because I guess my last question for you would be, um, you know, for exporters today, what are what do you think are some of the things that they may miss when they're thinking about risk management? Maybe some things that should be so obvious, but you know, a lot of times you see your customers would miss. Wow, that's a great question. One of the things that I would recommend um, clients think about is really having a step away from the daily and, and really do an evaluation of what might be my risks in these areas with someone who is really trained to help them through that. Where are my financial risks? Where are my strategic risks? What yeah. kind of competition might be out there coming in the future? What, what do I have in terms of my operations that could cause me problems? And, and in terms specifically of shipping, uh, one of the things that we've done with a lot of our clients, uh, particularly those that have difficult risks with earthquake and flood and mm -hmm. if their their locations are in difficult areas we've put in place a coverage that's not a not everyone knows about I think called stock throughput that takes starting with their inventory in the warehouse mm -hmm. all the way through delivery to their ultimate customer and pulls that out as a separate coverage type because or a separate placement mm -hmm. because when you take that inventory out of the property policy it's not subject to huge deductibles like it might be if you're located in an earthquake zone or in a flood zone right, uh, right. So the deductibles are much lower and the coverage is very broad so you can get flexibility there that you might need. Maybe maybe you're typically your shipments are half a million dollars a conveyance, but you have something big coming up that's going to be two or five million dollars. You can make those changes very quickly with these types of coverages where it's harder to do um, when you have a bigger risk that right. also has earthquake and flood type of exposure. So so we, we've moved many of our clients into that kind of a program to help them uh, basically do things more efficiently. And the other thing I might mention is some, uh, when you're starting out and you're using a common carrier and they say, well, you know, here's the shipping cost and here's how much you can pay. We'll, we'll take care of the insurance for you. Well, maybe it's really a lot cheaper if you bought it yourself, because that carrier 
really sees it as a profit center within their business, usually. And they're charging, you know, whatever it costs them, plus, you know, their profit load and overhead. And frequently, if you do this on a kind of a longer-term basis, you may not have an incremental premium to ship that next shipment because you've already estimated what your shipments are going to be. Right. And so it might not actually cost you much, and you may be paying somebody for something you you I mean what I find is the insurance paragraphs in the contracts between a seller and a buyer mm-hmm. are usually the last and least palatable thing nobody really wants to read that section exactly exactly but but, the, but you know today you have I mean for for a, a while now you have these just-in-time inventories so you have to really protect the whole supply chain yes yes you do and there is often money buried in there if you're willing to look for it or get someone to help you through it that really knows what they're doing so that would be something I would just generally recommend that periodically once a year at least you take some time and step back and say What's out there that I haven't thought about? And you do that with someone in the risk management or insurance broking field that you trust that can help you think about problems you haven't anticipated. Exactly. Gosh, Mary, we've talked about so many things and some great stories. I can't thank you enough for being our guest today. I'm going to post uh when we uh, post this podcast, I'll I'll uh, reference LSST so people can look it up. But I can't thank you enough for participating today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 